0: Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Soraris, and today I have a very special guest that got put together pretty quickly over the weekend. It's why I didn't tease it last Friday, because I wasn't sure if this person was going to have any free time to come talk on the show, but thankfully, Sean Hartnett was able to stop by and give me quite a bit of time, and we were able to have a really in-depth discussion about his time covering the Rangers and other teams around the league. He's written about the Devils. He's also written about the New York Red Bulls of Major League Soccer. But Sean was a really good conversation. We talked about good journalistic practices, what journalists who are covering sports are like on a day-to-day basis, their roles, responsibilities, how they interact with editors, how they interact with players, with coaches, with people within the league. It's a really good conversation and something I would like to do a little bit more of on the show. We touched on why sports are so important to Sean, where his entry point into sports was, and his little bit of his unconventional background to get into covering hockey professionally. It was a really good chat, but before I get to the conversation with Sean, I do have to remind everyone, please help grow the show. We're doing better. We're getting reviews. We're getting subscribers. We're getting new listeners. Things are going in the right direction, and I'm very happy to see. So, if you're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Audio Boom, any podcasting platform, please throw the Upper Bowl GM Podcast a follow you're on apple podcast hit that little subscribe button and if you have the time please take the extra two minutes go to the show's page go all the way to the bottom there are going to be five clear stars at the bottom hit the one furthest to the right that's leaving a five star review and beneath that is a button that says writer review please if you have the time take an extra minute leave a written review it would mean the world to me i like engaging with the audience so Today, I talked with Sean, who wrote about the Rangers, the Devils, hockey in general for a number of years for a bunch of different publications. I know him from his time covering the Rangers for WFAN, the radio station in New York. He always wrote a fair but critical column. His column was always one I liked reading because he was one of the first people in the Rangers market to use analytics in their columns and give a deeper understanding of what was going on beyond just this guy played well, that guy played well. Sean was one of the first guys I read who really made a point of saying this guy played well because he created this many scoring chances at five on five. The stuff you hear me talking about on this show, the stuff you see me writing in my blogs for Gotham SN, real quick to plug, I did write something that came out on Sunday about neutral zone play, why it's so important, and why as Hockey fans, you shouldn't be undervaluing it, and if you are a lesser-talented team, you can help hem the tide against a better opponent by playing stronger and more structured in the neutral zone. Lots of stuff going on. This is a good time of year for sports content. Uh, The Masters was very... It was entertaining, I wouldn't say exciting. Hideki Matsuyama won, first player from Japan to win the... First man from Japan to win the Masters, which is very exciting, Pretty entertaining. Uh, Xander Shoffley made a bit of a run on Sunday, but he had a rough two pair of two holes on the back nine after birdieing four straight holes. He m- had a chance at one point; he was only two strokes back, but he ended up finishing third. Hockey wise, Rangers split with the Islanders. Uh, they really had no business being in that game on Sunday night, but Shostakin kept them in it long enough to make it a game. I would like to say I expect more from the Rangers at this point. They should be better in overtime with their assignments. I still don't know what Ryan Strom was doing on the eventual sequence that led up to the Islander goal to win the game in overtime. Quiet trade deadline from the Rangers. There are reports that they're going to sign prospect defenseman Zach Jones, who's been playing college hockey at UMass Amherst. They won the College Hockey National Championship on Saturday night of this past week, I believe, Uh, he might be added to the fold for this final 15-game stretch here down the line. Might see some more faces come up from Hartford, maybe a Morgan Barrett, maybe a Tarmo Royninen, someone in that ballpark, just giving young guys a chance to stick down the stretch here. The Rangers don't really have a realistic chance of making the playoffs, so giving some younger guys a little bit of run to try, give them a trial run to know what they have going into next season is good asset management. All of that said, your little bit of a tease, a little bit of an appetizer, a little bit of a recap. It's time to get to my conversation with Sean. I'll see you guys in one sec.
1: Here's you The center
0: penalty coming up. Look at LeMille. Oh, my heavens! with that, I welcome on long-time Rangers writer Sean Hartnett. How are we doing, Sean?
2: Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Good to be uh, speaking with you.
0: Absolutely. This is an exciting time of year for hockey fans, but there's a lot going on in the hockey world right now. The deadline's going on. I've been watching TSN most of the morning, but we're here a little bit to talk about what your job was like, your experiences writing about the team, kind of peeling back the curtain about the day-to-day life of covering a specific team, whether it's as a columnist, a beat writer kind of floating in between the two, that kind of thing, because there's a general, I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about what the role of someone like you is in the landscape of things. And I know social media kind of has made that a little bit worse where you're getting the direct feedback directly pretty much as soon as you write anything. So you're here to kind of peel back the curtain, help the public understand a little bit more about what goes into putting together work about a team. So. Before we get to that part of the conversation, I always talk with people on the show about this because it's the basis for the show. So what's your relationship with sports been like in your life? What's your entry point? What are your earliest memories of sports? What's your relationship with sports been in your life?
2: Does it have to be hockey or any No, sport? any
0: sport, any sport.
2: Okay. So I think my, my first memories were going to Yankee Stadium probably as a seven-year-old. I, I think my first game was 1992 against the Oakland A's when McGuire was on, so that was kind of like a big thing, you know, to see like a slugger like that on one side. I think maybe Dave Stewart was pitching that day or Bob Walsh. I can't remember. Anyways, um, you know, for maybe younger viewers, those are kind of names that are pretty far in the distant past. But, you know, my first player that I recognized really in any sport was probably Don Mattingly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at that time, like, before Jir came along, like, he was, like, at that level in terms of, like, reverence. Like, he was the most popular modern-day Yankee, like, at that point. So, you know, those, those were, uh, you know, great memories for a kid to go to the, the old stadium before they tore it down. Um, you know, I, 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 I wish that modern kids got the opportunity to see some of the stadiums that had uh, since gone, you know, stadiums that have passed us by. Uh, you know, that that's a hockey thing, too, you know? Yeah. I mean, even even a place like uh, the old kind of Airlines Arena, like, it had an atmosphere. It had a charm to it. Like, I remember, like, the Devils fans who went there were, like, really, really super diehard up in the upper bowl. Yeah. There was that one guy. Do you remember that one guy? he always, like, get that chant going. He'd be like,
0: give me a D. Give me yeah. a D.
2: Let's devil Devils. That guy. You remember that
0: guy? Yeah. From my childhood, yeah, I remember that. that. That's one of those things you kind of get lost to time is – Sports have really, they've always been a business, but it really does seem like teams have kind of hammered that home now where a lot of arenas have lost the organic characters, the people who have been there their entire lives since their childhood. And it's kind of been commercialized to the point where every game feels exactly the same. There's not a unique experience in terms of the in-game presentation, the interactions you have, that kind of thing. But what would you say was the point where you realized, wow, like sports are kind of my thing. And I'm like, I want to do something with this for my life.
3: Well, I was definitely the kid who got in trouble in school for seeking um, baseball, almanacs, and <laughs> Athlon yearbooks, sporting news, hockey news. You know, like I would be like doing like a science assignment in class, like sixth grade or whatever. And I remember my my science teacher, she was a, an older lady. And she like sneak by, and I try to hide it, but like, you know, I, again trouble and get attention or whatever. But that's where my mind was focused on. I mean, you do you, do you follow Gary Vee
0: I know the name, yeah.
3: Okay, Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm sure you know is like a uh, entrepreneur and um, you know motivational speaker, pretty pretty prominent guy. But interestingly, he got to start with sports cards, and he like made money like hustling as a 12 Year old kid going around like conventions, maybe like metal conventions, conventions in New Jersey. So, um, I'm not like sorry, I'm not quite sure where I was going. With that. <laughs> no worries, I was, I was trying to connect the uh the, the experience, but anyways, um, you know, the, the entry points always uh different for different people. Oh, I, I know, what I was gonna say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to drag it out that way. I meant to say, uh, so like like him, he knew like what his passion was when he was young, and he went after it, and he was able to make a career out of it. So for me, like I find some similarity and commonality with that kind of story because, you know, not everyone when they graduate high school has the opportunity to go to you know a, a prestigious journalism school. You know, I'll, I'll take off the math and say you know I didn't spend a single day in college. I had to go out in the workforce as an adult and. Uh, you know, get hit with the real world, and that kind of made me even more hungry to satisfy my own dreams. I, I thought I did well in school with my journalism classes and my creative writing classes. Like, that really lit a fire under me. I had some good teachers in high school, um, but yeah, um, I, like, I knew I had an ap- ap- aptitude and appetite for it, but I'd say that, you know, it got kind of sidetracked for me, and, you know, I ended up working, you know, normal, teenage jobs supermarkets and banks and delis and things like that you know working construction so like I was very much an outsider and I was working a a nine-to-five job and I I realized in about 2009 I'm not happy with this life and I got to do what I think is right for me pursue my passion so I handed in my two weeks notice and my manager said you know Sean why are you leaving like you know, you don't know, have anything lined up. And I said, well, that's fine. You know, I'm just going to go start writing and see where it takes me. So for me, like, I I wouldn't recommend this to yeah. journalists, but, you know, I just, I, I pitched myself everywhere. I wrote for free. Um, you know, I, I feel like nowadays, like now that I know what I know, it kind of devalues people in the field. But For someone who's like a total outsider like myself, mm-hmm. like I just knew that I had to get my work in front of as many eyes as possible you know, one thing leads to another and you're able to do do some paid writing. And a lot of, and a lot of that early experience for me was in the hockey field. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, one thing led to another and WFAN picks me up as someone who would be editing for them in the newsroom. And when I wasn't doing that, I was covering the Devils, the Rangers and Red Bulls.
0: So how, since you mentioned it specifically, I think it's worth mentioning briefly. How do you think that, perspective of feeling like I'm not the traditional news person in this world changed how you did your job because I know there's a very regimented way covering the regular news and then covering sports is taught in journalism school that kind of thing you said you kind of picked it up basically you did a little bit of it in high school and you kind of wrote for free just to kind of get your legs under you give a portfolio of work to show people how would you say that outsider perspective influenced the way you did your job
2: well, it, it was a lot of
3: learning on the fly.
0: Mm-hmm. It was
3: some uh, tough lessons in terms of like understanding journalistic procedure. Like you know, I, I you know I had I read this stuff in, in classes and things like that, and did my own due diligence. But that's a different thing, you know, when suddenly you're on the beat in a in a dressing room, and there's certain procedures and whatnot, and you're interviewing coaches and. So, you know, for me, like, it was a baptism under fire. And you know, I think that was the best kind of experience I could get, especially considering at the time when I started, Torts was coach. <laughs> you know, I, I can imagine someone who would less want to sit there and answer questions than him. And if you're able to, like, break through and get through that barrier and try to know what kind of questions, he likes, you know, I feel like that kind of made me a little bit less of a target, considering that Torts had a reputation of uh, being a bit – snippy with certain reporters
0: yeah no he definitely made it a habit of singling certain people out if he felt like the question was a waste of time it's kind of a defense mechanism of a means of not wanting to talk about certain things and you know that's his job he's got to keep certain things clenched but there's a back and forth there where you need to you need to be able to get the person's respect enough that they'll trust you to give you a reasonable answer so I think that's a good way to transition the first part of this conversation. So you start floating around for and you're doing Rangers, Devils, Red Bulls, you mentioned. So at what point would you say you really started to hit your groove and you felt like I'm I'm killing this now? I, I have a firm grasp of what I need to do in my job.
3: Well, I mean, I know that you've been in media for some time now. Um, I'm not sure offhand what year you got your start, but you know, you're someone who I followed on social and i read i read your work but like just so you could clarify for me what was your first year working in the industry
0: i mean i don't know if you what you would i'd say like my sophomore year of college i started i ran a fan-sided blog by myself for two years daily content videos social that kind of stuff so i'd say probably like four-ish years now of content creation writing video social engagement whatever you want to call it so okay so we're talking about
3: what 2017
0: yeah about 2017
3: yeah so yeah so my first year was 2010 that was before I was hired by WFAN that's like when I was freelancing and you know I was getting opportunities to go to arenas go to practices morning skates um and eventually like I was able to parlay that into what my career became but even like during my strongest years at WFAN I thought I was killing it when I had five different companies that were that hired me at once, mm-hmm. and at that point, like I think I had left my editing job behind at the at the newsroom. Um, so at that point, like I was just like purely on the beat. I was doing what I loved. I loved, mm-hmm. you know, going to the morning skates. I loved being the first guy there. Um, I remember like I think when Nick when, when Rick Nash had a concussion protocol, and I remember we went down to the – because the, the morning skate was it was at the Garden. It wasn't a Greenberg skate. And uh, I remember being the first person in front of Rick and Ash, putting the mic up and asking him if there was any update on status if he was going to play tonight, and he said he was going to play. And, and I remember I had my phone right there, and as soon as, like, I had, like, one hand, I was, like, tweeting it out. Somehow, like, Drager got word of it, and he beat me to the punch. And that was that was like funny to me, like how like you can do everything right. You can be right there on the scene. You know, even like somebody who isn't even in the building, like some insider just gets like a nugget like that and and you you lose that scoop. But like I enjoyed at that time because, you know, with some of my freelance roles, I was really given like free reign on what I wanted to write. Uh some of my editors at WFN, like they wanted things that were a bit more hard hitting. They wanted things that, that they knew would get traffic you know, they wanted something more opinion injected. I remember I worked for a company called XM Sports, which was a a startup, uh, I believe based out of Boston. And I remember like they needed hockey people. And at the time they had myself, uh, Pat Pickens, Uh, let me think, They, they had a few pretty strong writers over there. And, you know, they made me like one of their like lead hockey guys. And I loved that I just had the opportunity write about whatever I wanted and you know I, I felt like I was able to relationship build better with players when like you know I could talk about stuff that was up their their alley things that were there were interesting to them off the ice where you can kind of like get to know people a little bit better get to know what makes them tick, get to know you know oh hey like you know where, where you've been eating lately in the city um you know all, you know road stuff different stories things like that um, you know guys let their guard down um, when you get to know them well enough I think I think uh, a really big plus about covering hockey is just the reputation that hockey players have of being really good interviews when they open up to you
0: mm-hmm. okay so we've touched this a little bit so I wanted to get into a bit more of the day-to-day stuff before we get a little more deeper so on a typical day so you said you morning skate so you're there for morning skate, which is what nine ten a.m. ish.
3: Yeah, say say maybe like a ten
0: a.m. skate. Okay, so, like so ten a.m. skate that wraps up probably eleven thirty ish, and then you have a half a day between the gate when you have to get there and morning skate. So on a typical day, between morning skate and when you have to get to the rink for a game night, what are you doing in terms of work responsibility? Um, well.
2: You're trying to get the idea, like, what
3: happens between the time that I get out of the scrums and yeah. out, of the, out of the coaches' uh, session, and then what happens between then and and the puck drop?
0: Yeah. Uh, I'd like to a little bit more of the day-to-day, yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. See, like, like I feel like I was given a lot of opportunity to write.
0: Mm-hmm. And at that
3: time, like like I said, I was a freelancer, and I was working for maybe five different outlets at once. So, it was, you know, I was doing a lot of pitching. So, you know, it was a little different than say, like, you know, if it was say Pat Leonard at the Daily News or Brett Gallus at the Post or Brooks or, or any of them, you know, Andrew Gross, Katie Strang, like, you know, they were like, like nailed, nailed to um, the idea of like, they're going to go there, they're going to have so and so many stories, you know, for, for, the, for the site, they're going to have a gamer, they're going to have enterprise story, all, all that kind of thing. So like I, I feel like their opportunities covering the team was like a bit more regimented. Mm-hmm. Where for me like because I was I was a freelancer and that includes WFN like I wasn't bound like, to like working for one company. Um, you know I was always pitching people. Mm-hmm. You know a good friend of mine like Dennis Gorman uh, he like really helped me in terms of being proactive about putting myself out there because you know you have to, you look at it and you you say oh the Maple Leafs are coming in. And maybe, that, maybe maybe somebody from the Toronto Star isn't isn't coming in to cover the team. You know, you, you reach out to the editor, say, hey, I'm at the Garden tonight. The Leafs are here. You know, do you want me to get you anybody from the morning skate? Do you want me to get you an exclusive? That kind of thing. So um, for me, like, it was almost kind of like choose your own adventure sort of thing. Okay. Compared sure. to the whole, you know, day-to-day beat kind of thing.
0: Gotcha what types of stories did you like to write because you had such the free reign or were you kind of all over the place based on whatever piqued your interest a given day?
3: Well, like I said, I think at at WFAN, like I had an editor at the time who wanted me to write like hard-hitting opinion-based stuff. Okay. And I feel like he he got on me because at the time, the 2013, 14, 15 Rangers were, you know, a team that was chasing the president's trophy and and 2015 – Uh, won the president's trophy a team that had been to the stanley cup final in 2012 and then again in 2014 so we're we're talking about a team that really is generally succeeding in almost every metric so it's hard to you know find something to be critical of Mm -hmm. so you know i mean you know there would be bad performances and i've seen you know different writers kind of like pick and choose certain players to Kind of target, you know, oh, the, the Rangers won the game, but Keith Yandel made X amount of turnovers, How's his adjustment going? You know, did the Rangers give up too much? You know, that kind of thing. Gotcha. so uh, you know I, I would I would say that um, I, I felt like I wasn't as ad- adversarial as some some people covering the team. I felt like you know I kind of had more of an opportunity to be myself and mm-hmm. kind of just like show the players who I was and I think that's like something like that doesn't really get talked about as much really is that like it's almost like there's a lot of conformity going on and if you do your job slightly differently you kind of become someone of a black sheep in the group and you know I would occasionally hear whispers you know I'd hear you know if I didn't turn up in a morning skate I'd, I'd show up the next day at, at practice and you kind of hear things through the grapevine and You know, I guess it's no different really than any other field where, you know, if you have your way of doing things and it's a little different and you feel strongly about it and you think that's the way to go, that people who are used to doing a certain way might try to like pick faults
0: with you. Definitely, definitely. You, you can see it because every, every journalist obviously has their own voice, but a lot of them fall into a certain way of doing things because when you do something a long period of time, you get comfortable with certain people. You have a better relationship with your editors. You're able to crank things out a little bit easier. You find your niche, specifically what specific thing you like to target. I'm a big proponent of using analytics and matching it up with video stuff and going back and re-watching it, but I know that's not for everyone. Some people really do, just like uh, the team did this, this is how this happened. that kind of thing, but right. more straightforward stuff. So every yeah, writer yeah. has their own niche.
3: Yeah, exactly. Every writer has different strengths. Yeah. You know, some writers are very good at just telling you exactly what happened in a very straightforward, fact-based way. Yeah. Others like to delve deeper into analytics. I would say that my style changed over the years because, mm-hmm. like I said, I went from being someone who'd go to continental airlines arena, you know, buy cheap Devils tickets. I didn't grow up a Devils fan, but you know, it was great just to have an arena that close to me where I grew up in Jersey. And I remember just looking up at the press box and saying, "You know what? I'd, I'd like to be one of those guys one day. If that ever happens, that'd be cool." And I'm like it was kind of like you know, one of those far off dreams in the head of a teenager. But you know, fate would have it that I, I was able to do that.
0: That just reminded me of something I was going to ask you before. How would you say your relationship with sports changed once you entered the business? Because I've found that once I've kind of started cranking out stuff and watching a lot more, I just have a really deep appreciation for sports now to the point where it's like, I don't really dislike any teams or any individual players anymore. Cause mm-hmm. I just, I'm in, mean, I'm watching so much of hockey, baseball, whatever, that it's these guys are doing amazing things. And if they don't do it one way, they can do it this way. And it works out this way. Like, all of my friends who are Islander fans are constantly ribbing me. How come the Rangers aren't getting it together? How come the Rangers aren't getting it together? And I just, I point, I'm, I, I think the Islanders are doing good. I Trust me, I think what they're doing is really smart. They've maximized their talent to play a certain style of hockey and it's working for them. There's so much, so much incredible sports being played regardless, I don't know how it changed for you but that's, for me at least, I've found a deeper appreciation.
3: Yeah, I don't think anyone's doubting uh, the work that Barry Trots is doing. He's doing yep. a fantastic job over there. Anyways, um, what I was gonna say though about like how like my style changed was was that I was a guy who had like my own idea in my head of like how hockey should be played, mm-hmm. and that's because I grew up as a Flyers fan. My dad was a Flyers fan, um, so like that was a team that when I was young that I eventually, you know, drew towards. So you know, I was very big proponent at that time of like you know has me black and blue hockey you know fisticuffs you know uh typical broad street bully stuff but you know i think like when i started covering forrell's rangers like i thought that they they played with the level of um i'd say i know it sounds like a cliche but like they played the right way
1: yeah
3: they played with honor you know i, I remember like certain games against Pittsburgh, you know, Torrell would call out Malkin or Crosby for doing something dirty, MacBook. And, you know, I I feel like that kind of had an effect on changing the way I looked at hockey. And I think just, you know, the idea of like, oh, you know, hockey is a sport of big bruisers, you know, go out, go and lay out somebody with a big check. Um, I have to say, like, a writer who totally changed my view was patrick Burns. Mm-hmm. Uh he was a uh, long time with the uh, fourth period and sports illustrated um you know, he's a good friend of mine and we grew up like a couple towns away from each other we never really knew each other until we got covering hockey and we made that connection and we have like long deep discussions about hockey you know again mask off um you know after a game and i filed off my column you know, if I didn't have anything else to do, you know, I'd go and and grab a beer with him and we talk about hockey, and, you know, I feel like I learned so much just through talking with him, and I learned so much about analytics and systems and things that, like, I don't think the casual fan delved as deeply into back then, so I feel like um, then, like, I felt like I was very lucky to know someone who was that tuned in that way because back 2010 2011 I don't think hockey had the full stats revolution yet so I was like lucky to have that experience and kind of be ahead of the curve and I felt that with my storytelling ability and my understanding of events uh, advanced statistics and analytics I felt like I was able to tell analytics to fans in a way that was digestible for them mm-hmm. I thought that was like a, a good strength that I had
0: definitely comes across it's one of the reasons I always gravitated towards your writing was that specific reason because I was always a little I was into them but not to the degree I am now obviously but your writing was a way of making it accessible now the numbers and the charts and the graphs that stuff's a lot more accessible now but later I'd say it really started to take off 2015-2016 is when it became a lot easier for the general public to get now there's numerous websites that do it for free at evolving wild natural stat trick um michael blake mccurdy has one there's top down hockey there's a bunch of people who do a lot of really nice stuff to to give people who want to understand hockey deeper a better understanding of the game because There is so much going on during the course of the hockey game. There are so many variables conflicting with each other. And it's one of the reasons hockey is so interesting from a strategy standpoint, where it's almost, it's similar to soccer in a way, where you kind of have that free-flowing nature of you don't have set plays like you do in football or basketball, where you're letting the players interpret the space around them to make things happen. It's one of the reasons I find hockey so interesting to watch.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a big proponent of analytics. But, you know, it's funny because I feel like in the early days, it was like a Wild West shootout. You yeah. know? Like, like, basically, two cowboys show up on a on a desert field, and it's quick draw and, you know, it's, it's like, it's basically, it was like a war between traditional stats and analytics. But I've always been the sort of thinker who thinks, well, these, this is all useful information, like the most yeah. information... That we can grab helps us come uh, come up with the best analysis so you know it's funny how it devolved into this social media war but in reality like if you're if you know how to study advanced statistics and you know how to you know judge players with their on ice uh showing like i feel like that's the best
0: of both worlds definitely definitely anything you can give people who consume your stuff more information the better always been of that opinion now, on a game night, you're in the press box. What's your typical notebook looking like? What are you keeping track of during the course of a game?
3: Okay, so like I'd have my laptop open. Mm-hmm. Um, I would you know, like like you mentioned with the uh, how available answerphysics came, you know you'd be able to have that stuff at your fingertips. So you know I'd have that and I'd check some of the player scores after the period after the periods would end at the intermission um you know i'd have nhl.com open with their their stat tracking um you know i'd be able to follow shifts you know see how long guys were out for uh you know i'd have my little notebook i'd be doing hand notes during the game and you know i'd be thinking like oh you know zuccarello made this great backhanded pass through his legs behind behind the net you know and and, and i don't know, say whoever say On finished it, like, you know, that'd be like a great thing to go to Stefan and ask them about after the game, get a good quote out of them, that kind of thing. So it was a combination of me just keeping track of all ice events and things that I'd like to ask in post-game availability.
0: What specifically are you watching for? Are you looking for transition stuff? Are you looking for spacing? Are you looking for just how confident guys are playing? What were the things you really took a gauge on to see how guys were playing well? What kind of stuff went into saying X, Y, and Z happened, so this guy is having a good night? Because goals and assists obviously count, but there's more to that, especially when you're watching a team with great frequency.
3: Right. Well, I think the perfect example for that is Rick Nash.
0: Yeah.
3: Especially in his later Rangers years, where what he was doing didn't quite add up the goals and assists like it had maybe in his Columbus heyday or you know, his, what was it, 52? No, how many goals did he have that one year? I'm trying to remember.
0: 42, 43, somewhere in the low 40s.
3: Okay, it was probably the most in Yager or whatever. Yeah.
0: And anyways,
3: um, that one that one crazy year he had. Um, aside from those years, the, the later version of Rick Nance, I thought was as valuable of a three-way presence that you could find in the league and it didn't matter that he wasn't scoring a hat trick every night, and it didn't matter that he was a, you know, he was hitting a post or missing missing a an, an open net here and there. It's just that his value was was basically being a, a force, a, a three zone monster, you know, carrying the puck and really, you know, dragging dragging the Rangers, like dragging his teammates to into better positions on the ice.
0: Yeah, no. He, while, while,
3: also, while also being a very confident and solid defensive
0: player. Yeah, no. Late stage, Rick Nash was Marion Hossa-esque. That was the kind of player he evolved into towards the end of his career where he was responsible in all three zones, still offensive upside, and he helped make his line mates better because he had the puck so often that other guys would have time to get to space and.
3: Exactly, like yeah. we said, opening up time and space.
0: Yeah, that's really one of the things that you, it's hard to keep track of, and I don't expect the casual hockey fan to, you know, open up a natural statric or a tableau or what have you to understand that. And it's part of our responsibility as content people, as journalists, is we got to help make we got to make it the discourse more than just this guy scored a goal, he had a good night. Well, how did the goal happen? Did they get a good zone entry? Did someone mess up? There's so many things going on
2: yeah and you think about like
3: guys that are kind of unsung heroes yeah and i i would say like the rangers fan base and i'm not like kissing up anyone <laughs> or anything like that or, or trying to be mr popular or whatever among the fan base. fan base by saying this but i feel like on average their 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 fan base is very smart and very well informed and knows the game and understands the game and you hear the stories of you know People going to the garden for generations, you know. Yeah. You know, still, still bringing their grandparents to the garden, and that kind of thing. know, yeah, I remember even like one time I was talking with Brian Boyle, and he mentioned like that was like such a great thing about the garden that like, you know, you'd see like the generations of, of fans that w- that would continue to show up, and you'd see the same faces, sort of thing.
0: Yeah.
3: Um. So you know, I, I a player who stuck out to me as like an unsung hero was Benoit Fouya Definitely in that in that 2014 run, and I just feel like. His his body and his puck control. I feel like that opened up so much space
0: for Zubarello and for Didn't think we'd get into Benoit Pouliot today, yeah. but yeah, man, that team just... Obviously one of those cases where the result was greater than the sum of their parts. No, I mean, your bona fide stars, Nash, Lundqvist, really it, and then a bunch of just good players. Uh, going up and down that lineup, on, Younger, Kreider... Zook Broussard, then they had the veteran line with Richards and St. Louis and Hagelin was still here a really interesting team and a case study in what you can do if you get guys to buy into playing a specific way. Mm-hmm.
3: Dominic Moore being
0: yeah. fantastic. That, that fourth court. line, that fourth scoring, line
3: scoring big goals in the playoffs against yeah. Montreal. and um, I
0: mean boy. even
3: even even Dorset like Dorset yeah.
0: really well. Yeah, then they had the Carcillo experience for a month and a half. He was a good floater for them. A good group of defensemen who were all pretty responsible. No one who was anxiety-inducing anytime they touched the puck. I mean, even that third pair of Klein and John Moore managed to be pretty respectable towards the end going into the playoffs and pretty damn good in the playoffs. That team won so many games, two to one or three to two, just on sheer will and Lundquist playing out of his mind. It really is... Just so fascinating. I, I still haven't brought myself to rewatch any of the twenty fourteen Cup final in a journalistic capacity. I haven't, but just rewatching the conference final and then the second round against Pittsburgh, you see, you see the flashes of what I don't want to say what could have been because that team was really good, but they they had a higher ceiling. They really felt had a higher ceiling.
3: Yeah, I mean, hey, you're not the only one who shies yeah. away from watching it because. You know, if I mention the name Alec Martinez to my girlfriend, she
0: gets a PTSD. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So after a game now, we game is wrapped up. You've got your notebook in hand. You've got your bag with your stuff in it. You head down to the room. Describe what the process is like. So is it coach availability first? Is it individual guys who are made available? Or is it kind of free-flowing in the dressing room and then coach availability? What's the process like?
3: Okay, so... Um, you know, it depends on the team. Like mm. Some teams would bring out the coach first. Uh, it also depends on the time of year. Because it definitely changes during the playoffs and it becomes a bit more, I don't want to say organized, but there's like an order and like the NHL is kind of controlling things. So like in, with the playoff games, um, you know, they would bring in the microphone and you'd have to raise your hand and whatnot. And I think the coaches would speak first and then they'd open up the, the dressing room. And then, like, I remember during the finals, obviously, like, you would go into the dressing room and you'd interview guys. And then they'd pull certain guys aside in, like, a side room. Like, maybe, like, if Lundqvist had, like, a big game or Fred Richards scored a big goal or, you know, Fred Richards just speaking as, like, the de facto leader of that 2014 team. So, but on, on a standard game night, uh, basically, I would say – most reporters would probably head down to the meeting room before the game ended mm-hmm. and would watch a game up on the screen. Uh, and then would as the final seconds were going, like they'd walk down through the uh, the dining room and out towards the tunnels. And there you kind of like wait on a line where the security is, and the security let you through. Then you'd be able to go into the, the dressing room. Um And once you're in there, um, you know, there were guys who would always be at their locker and, you know, where they'd be, you know, the, you know, they'd always be ready to speak. Other guys would kind of filter in, uh, you know, some guys, you know, who weren't like stars were kind of like maybe getting treatment done or whatever. But, um, you know, some guys are pulled aside doing radio at the time that, you know, we're in the room. So, you know, Basically, you know, I would say like the leadership group is always usually there when you first walk in. You know, I always found Stepan to be like a very easy guy to talk to. Um, you know, said what was on his mind. Uh, if it was a bad performance, I think that anger would translate to the pit to the paper or translate to the audio. Um, I mean, you know, Girardi was always there, Stall was always there. Um, And, you know, with Lundqvist, you know, Lundqvist is a big deal. I mean, you have a lot of different uh, reporters out there who are national reporters, who are reporters who might just be there for one day. And obviously everybody wants a piece of Lundqvist. Everybody wants to know what's on his mind after the game. And, you know, you could be able to get that exclusive with them at a practice or a morning skate. But after the game, you know, it's a frenzy. You know, there's people with uh, big, huge cameras, knocking people over, you know, certain people would be trying to like squeeze up real close. So, you know, I, I, I thought that Lancos was always insightful. And mm-hmm. I always thought that like, it was very, I think he was careful about what he'd say because he'd sit there for a moment and you can see him like thinking out his response. So I think it was very considerate about what he was saying and what he was communicating as a leader of the team. Uh, so, so basically, to, to answer your question, um, you know, you, you definitely go through the, the scrums because, you know, at, at some point, you know, I might be talking to Mark Stahl. Mark Stahl might be giving me something good, and no one's by Mark Stahl. You know, so I just say to Mark, you know, could you just give me a quick exclusive, you know, um, you know, we'll talk about um, ads effort tonight, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, Anyway, he'd give that to you there, and that was great. You know, it was really valuable for me to at least get a unique quote compared to the rest of the room. So I'd rather, you know, go to a situation where I can get something that's unique from a player who isn't being crowded. Because the the Rangers would put everything out on media sheets anyway. Mm. That was in the scrum. So you know, when Lundquist speaks, and when Stall speaks, and or or Stepan, Girardi, and any of those guys, um, you know, for the most part, what the Rangers picked up. On audio would go on the uh, media uh, table, so you you'd come back up from the the coaches' uh, post game press conference, and they already have the uh, the quotes laid out from the players. So I guess you know they had they had a big team. They had a big team of uh, PR people, and they were all super helpful. Um, you know, a lot of kids who were in college, a lot some some of them who I saw go on and become permanent members of uh, the Rangers organization um everyone saying I mean, it was great just very helpful that those people hustled and same thing with the devils same thing going on with them you know it was just great that uh you could as much as i would like to speak to somebody and you know i'd ask pr and say you know would um would don't be available you know and they'd say you know let me go check and see if he's available and they bring more out and i'd be able to speak to him quick and get something different than say what the post was talking about or what the daily news was talking about
0: how much time do you typically have when you're in the room and then how much time after you're done organizing your stuff do you have to file what you're going to write for the night
3: um so so basically what i did was let's let's say like you've got maybe a good 15 minutes in the dressing room you know you, you take hand notes when you're when you're interviewing guys sometimes sometimes yeah sometimes no depending you know have my microphone on and certain things I'd soar in my head if anybody said something particularly interesting um and then from that time that it's over you're walking down to the press room and you're waiting for the coach to come down and you have a little time to listen back write things down take some notes tweet out a couple things you know especially if like there's something injury-related, or something that comes up unexpectedly in the room, and then you know, depending on the coach, with Torello, it could be two minutes, and they mm-hmm. just sick of it and walks off. Mm-hmm. Maybe AV was a bit more, uh, a bit more eloquent. Um, but you know, the thing that people I, I don't think people really recognize at home is just how emotional coaches are after the games and I feel like almost like they have to catch themselves because in the moment especially if there's like a dirty hit you know a bad call I, I it's very easy for a coach to say something bluntly and then for that to be out in the media and that to be this you know big you know back page of material so you know part of me looking at it from their perspective the coach's perspective I don't I don't blame them for being a little short with us or a little guarded.
0: Definitely, definitely. It really does come across. That's one of those things that's always interesting to see, how a coach is a reflection of their team and how that evolution changes when guys go from organization to organization. Like, now it seems like Vigneault is a little bit even more laid back with Philadelphia than he was in New York. Uh, They haven't had a great... Wait a minute, wait a minute. How is that possible? Exactly. Because, because, Because I covered a team with Tortorella, where
3: everybody was walking on eggshells. <laughs> Tortorella was just, you know, as as savvy of a coach he was on ice, it seemed like he was really choking out the air in that locker room. And, you know, you've, you've seen some of the story. You've seen Chompry yeah. talk about him and other other players like Gabriel guys who've been maybe out of the game who kind of let reveal a bit about Tortorella. So, um Well, the thing about A.V., I thought A.V. was the whole opposite. A.V. was like hands-off, you know, these guys are men, you know, I respect them, you know, I respect them to police the dressing room. So really total opposite experience. And you could tell, you could tell that the players were a lot more relaxed. Mm -hmm. Although I thought like Callahan was still the same Callahan (laughs) and that he was always kind of giving like the same yearbook answer, you know.
0: So – what was the relationship amongst people covering the team? Like, because you mentioned the whole, you know, I want to get something that other people don't have. Obviously, you know, there, there's competition there. You're trying to get stuff that other people don't have. But what's the relationship generally like amongst you guys? Um, it
3: seems like a high school cafeteria to me. <laughs> what what does that mean? Like, where it shows, like, you want know, to say table A, B, yeah. C. Like it's Spongebob meme, right? So... You know, I didn't pretend to be something that I wasn't, you know, I didn't have that kind of track record of a Larry Brooks or an Andrew Gross or Steve DePay, you know, guys who are all excellent writers, uh, all who had a real handle on the team. And I think a lot of respect goes that way, you know, for them or, or any any writer who have had the opportunity to cover a team that long. You know, so I I kind of knew my space. You know, I would say like within that group, like most of those guys were pretty amenable. They were they were pretty uh pretty friendly once you got to know them. You know, talk about things off ice, talk to Andrew Gross about music and his drumming. You know, so I think mean, I think Steve Zappay was a blues guy. I don't mean St. Louis blues, but I mean like you know yeah I like the blues clubs and things like that. You know, you you find out things about people and. Uh, of, you know, I, maybe that was when I gave that analogy about school cafeteria, you know, maybe that was a little bit more my feeling sort of being an outsider and suddenly all these people being like, who's this guy? I I no know who he is, where he come from, what school did he go to, you know, where did he work before this? Where did he intern? So maybe, maybe like some of the reaction I got was natural. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I quickly, you know, found a group of, of friends. You know, and I mean, maybe, I don't know how common it is with people in other walks of life, other, uh, other lines of work to kind of have those friendships. Uh, you know, people like Dennis Gorman, and Patrick Kearns, Scott Charles, uh, Christian Arnold, uh, the list goes on. I mean, the Norwegian writers were, were really, uh, the, the uh, Scandinavian writers were really nice. Uh, Pierre Bureman, uh, Matthias asked, like there there's so many like nice people I, I happen to run into, so uh, but th- but at the same time, like you know, if you are a young writer, you kind of you kind of let the veteran writers have first crack at certain things, especially in case of somebody like Sam Fishler, you know mm-hmm. who you know was a staple at the garden. Uh, I always remember like being in a, a press conference and someone would be asking a question and, like, Fischler had, like, a loud voice and would kind of overpower them yeah, kind of thing, but, you know, he earned, he earned that, you know? I mean, what? He was writing for Sports Illustrated and Hockey News way back in the day, so, you know, I'm definitely a believer that guys and gals who have the big name and have the reputation, you know, they earned it for a reason, and I think I did my best job of you know, being myself, but, you know, trying not to be, um, what's the the word I'm looking for, you know, I I definitely felt like my writing, it definitely came through in a different way than most everyone else, and I definitely put a lot of uh, my own thoughts into what I was writing, you know, I, I felt like I wasn't cheating off of anybody's paper, you know, I felt like, What I was writing was purely my interpretation of what was going on. Um, So, you know, I I definitely think. On the other hand, I did learn just through assimilation and watching, you know, veteran writers go about their work and seeing how they do things. So, I I definitely felt that, even if like I wasn't some young intern at a newspaper who was who was, you know, being sent to shadow somebody. I still felt like I was able to learn a lot of things just through seeing some of the best people in the industry do their work on a nightly basis. So, you know, if any of them are listening to that, you know, veteran writers like Larry Brooks, who, you know, I'm eternally thankful for getting me into the Professional Hockey Writers Association. Um, Andrew Gross, Steve Zape, uh, Arthur Staple, Katie Strang, um, know even pat leonard you know guys who are my age uh whatever you know they you know they all they all um helped me in some somewhere or another so i'm definitely very thankful for that
0: what's something the general public doesn't understand about your job
3: that you're not a fan that you're not there to wave pom-poms um obviously i think the golden rule is there's no cheering in the press box yeah um that's definitely the golden rule um I think uh, I think some fans expect you to be kind of like half fan, half analyst and write something that satisfies their their view of what's going on. Um, I felt like the few times that I was like particularly critical of players, um, that's when I really found out the divide in fans when it comes to people who are like, well, this guy's a writer, and he's sent there to report what's going on in an unbiased way and not, you know, pump this player up or anything like that. So, like, on one hand, you have, like, people understood it, and other people are like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're being disrespectful to this great player who did this, that, and the other. Who are you, you know, some unathletic hockey reporter, you know, writing negatively about a player. So I feel like some fans don't really get that. It's a job, you know. It's not like, you know, you're sitting up there with a beer and your leg with your, le- with your legs up, leaning back, you know. It's not. It's not that kind of thing. So, I think the uh, that's probably one thing that fans might might not understand that like you're there to give your best recollection of what happens. You're there to use your access to give a fan a perspective that they might not be getting just through going to the game themselves or watching the broadcast or so, so you know i feel like the access is invaluable really.
0: yeah no it's definitely come across i know from everybody i've talked to that the last year or so has been pretty rough because you don't have the access because you're pretty much all relegated to just zoom stuff and it's not the same because the team is picking who's available to talk in those, and they're only giving one or two guys. You're not able to float around. You're not able to keep up with guys as often. You're only getting one individual question if you're lucky, and then you got to go off of what other people ask for sound bites and that kind of thing. So we got to get back to normal when it comes to that because sports journalism is important. It it, I, it really it one of the things that annoyed me about where I went to college was that they kind of. The main professors kind of wrote sports journalism off as kind of, you know, a sideshow. It's not, we're here to report the news. We're here to cover politics. We're here to cover crime, that kind of thing. And sports journalism is invaluable. These are multi-billion dollar industries. And, you know, it's not cheap to go to a hockey game. If you want to go to a hockey game, you know, you want the team to try to win. You want them to put their best foot forward. You want them to be honest with the public about their intentions of doing things like that. And sports journalists serve an important role in making that happen. And I've even had that with my work is people telling me all you ever are is negative. Don't, doesn't the team ever do anything right. And it's not my job to tell you if the team is doing things right or wrong. It's This is what's happening. You know, If they're playing poorly because of this, they can fix it by doing this and they're choosing not to well I want to know why they're not doing it that kind of thing I I definitely can echo that the same sentiment of the misunderstanding of what the role of a reporter is and it trickles to politics too how come you're covering this person like this well that's what they're telling me so this is what I have yeah
3: I mean I can think of examples where where I really liked a player that I covered Mm -hmm. And I had to ask the tough questions, and I had to be critical of that player. You know, that's the territory. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, if someone kind of, like, opens up to you and you build up that trust level, you know, I don't want to burn that bridge as, as a reporter, but at the same time, like, if there is a question that needs to be asked about performance, I, I'm obligated to ask it because of my, my profession and my role
0: covering the team definitely definitely what's something you've written where you had someone specifically ask you about what you wrote about them
3: like a, a player or, yeah or... a
0: player a coach anyone professionally who you wrote something about them and they kind of pulled you aside and said hey man what's the deal here you
2: know i, I don't it never came from a player
0: like, uh-huh.
3: like i might i might like talk to a player after I get done with interviewing him and I might just say, like, you know, hey, like, heads up, like, you know, this might come out a certain way. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not taking a shot at you. It's just how media works and how, you know, my editor might dress it up kind of thing. Gotcha. And maybe, like, if it was something that did come out and did get a bit of blowback um, just out of, you know, maybe a player or the team not liking what I wrote, I feel
0: like I heard it more often from an agent. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. So how would you say your job evolved over time in terms of your understanding of what you had to do and how to best tell your story? I know you specifically mentioned understanding hockey a little bit deeper, your opinion of how hockey should be played, understanding analytics. but. Specifically to your job, because you were writing for FAN for quite a while, a number of places for a number of years. How would you say your understanding of your job changed? Of my responsibility, I thought was this, but now that I know how to do this better, I really feel like I should be doing this.
3: Uh, well, it's kind of a complicated question because I feel like some of that mentoring comes through good editors mm-hmm. and strong editors who say, look, I don't need 1,500 words. If you can get me something in 500 words that's more concise that flows better you know i felt like when i first started covering whether it be the rangers devils red bulls and any anything that i was covering at the time you know i thought the best thing i could do is write as much as possible and you know fill it up with all these quotes and just overload the reader with information but really what I learned as I got older and matured, and you know, definitely took uh, constructive criticism to heart. That you know, if you're able to do five, six hundred, seven hundred words, and all of it's valuable, all of it's you know really good stuff, and it, it it flows well, and it's something you know, especially in the world that we're living in, where You know, we're all Instagram people. We're all scroll, 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 you know, turn the page to the next thing. You know, I, I definitely got stronger with my leads. I definitely got stronger with my angles. So, you know, I feel like part of that is just experience. And part of that comes when you have editors who care about the product that you're putting out and want to say what needs to be said to you in order to help you out in your career.
0: How does a team changing year to year affect how you build relationships? Because a lot of people when they're on a specific beat or a specific beat for a column they're writing, that kind of thing, it's the same people for four or five years in political offices, that kind of thing. How does a team constantly having turnover affect how you do your job?
3: Well, yeah, that's that's uh, not that different with politics if you do think about it because, you know, you had the Rennie Rangers, you know, the sports Rangers, A and B, now the Quinn Rangers. I remember coming to the dressing room, and I remember Dubinsky and Callahan being staples, and thinking, like, oh, you know, these guys are going to be around for a long time, and then everything changes, and, you know, those those are guys who I go to a lot. You know, I remember Dubinsky, you know, definitely wearing his emotion on his sleeve. I'd uh, like interviewing guys like that guys like him and bursard later on who would you could tell like you know if something if something happened in the game something controversial on the ice something that got the players heated up if you get a microphone in front of them they're gonna give you a really good
0: what would you say um, oh god what's up no i was gonna say what was the most tense locker room you've ever walked into after a game any uh, specific uh, game jump out the
3: 2015 uh, Game Seven, Crown's mm-hmm. Final against the Lightning. Like, like it hurt. It hurt to see one close that, that, that after that, because he gave absolutely everything in his body, especially considering how close he came the year before, and just knowing how how strong that group was, and if they got into, you know, Stanley Cup Final, the big dance, that they could have had a chance of being the first team to bring Lord Stanley down the uh, the Canyon, Canyon Heroes and Messi I and mean, Leach and Graves and all those guys, Richter from 1994. Um, but Yeah, I mean, that was a rough run going because just just how the game ended, you know, because it, it was a third period that opened 0-0, right? Yep. And they just couldn't find that goal. They couldn't they couldn't Repay one list for what he was doing, not just in that game, but on that whole run, and even the year before that. Just in terms of just him, you know, I don't want to say one player single-handedly carries a team, but I mean, we look at his postseason save percentages in those years, his game game by game stats, how incredible he was, and it just, it, I don't like, you know, I don't like saying this, but it sucked, it sucked seeing that hurt in his face. Yeah.
0: On the inverse. What's the best locker room you've ever walked into after a game? Uh,
3: the Devils after they clinched uh, the Eastern Conference final, the uh, Adam Henry overtime
0: goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a party. <laughs> that Devils yeah. team was – they had so many guys on that team. I went and rewatched that series, like, when quarantine first started, like, last May when, like, you really couldn't do anything. And – not only is just there's so much talent on the ice on both teams, it's dramatically different hockey from what's being played right now. Yeah, So much of that game was played beneath the goal line, so much stuff in the corners, a lot of banging, a lot of checking, a lot of chippiness, a lot of guys who clearly just didn't like each other from constantly playing each other all the time.
3: Yeah, I mean, you, you can tell like that there was a, a huge rivalry there, not just between the players, but...
0: The coaches the too, <laughs> Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. Cause that ed- that was the regular season that ended with the the um, the lime brawl to start the game. That was in that same season, yeah. I forgot about that.
3: Yeah. yeah. So you know, to answer your question, if that was a party, you know,
0: <laughs> I mean,
3: you know, not that reporters, but parties <laughs> yeah. because I remember sitting outside the uh, the dressing room hearing the music flaring and uh playing like duck sauce Barbara Streisand. <laughs> And I remember, like, Dina Zuberis walking around with, like, this big boombox playing, like, Russian music. It was, it was something.
0: So a little bit more less serious now. Rapid fire things I wanted to talk to you about a little bit more. Who's the best hockey player you think you've seen in person covering when you've been covering hockey? Obviously, there can be more than one answer. There is no individual, but.
3: Okay, so I started covering in 2010. Mm-hmm. So only of my reporting career. Yeah. I feel like I'm really on the spot. Like I really want to say Yager. Mhm. Like those 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 years where he was contending for the Hart Trophy with the Rangers, that was something. But I feel like any answer that isn't Crosby or Ovechkin feels wrong.
0: Uh no, I I I always tell my friends we should go anytime that Connor McDavid's here, anytime the Penguins are here, anytime the Sharks were here when Jumbo was re- was healthy yeah. and in his prime, or when the Senators would come and Eric Carlson was at his peak, when the tickets are ten dollars at the Prudential Center and you know there were these generational guys coming, we should go see them.
3: Yeah, gosh, like, looking back at Carlson, like that stretch where he before he got traded to San Jose, how how freaking good was he?
0: Best best defenseman in the league and not really a discussion. I still don't know how he doesn't have more Norris trophies. I really don't. Yeah. Next, which Rangers team of your time writing professionally did you think was the best? The 14, the 15, the 2011 team that went to the conference final, which team do you think had the highest ceiling out of all of them? I
3: think the popular vote among Rangers fans would be 2014. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to think that in 2014, Had Zuccarello not gotten injured,
0: yeah, it could have been, it could have been that year. I'm I'm of the same opinion, even if it's just one of McDonough or Zuccarello is healthy, if McDonough is not playing on a broken foot or Zuccarello doesn't take the puck to the head, they still probably can eke out the series win against Tampa. And they had a puncher's chance against that Blackhawks team if they had just one of those guys healthy,
3: yeah. You remember game seven against uh Tampa Bay, yeah, they dropped uh seven defensemen. Yep. And there were, you know, McDonough couldn't make it out at the start because they were freezing his leg.
0: Yeah. Just to get his foot in the skate. And he only played like wild. seven minutes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely wild seeing some of those injuries. You know, you'd be, speaking to Dan, you'd be speaking to Dan Girardi and you'd look down at his ankle. Yeah. And there'd just be this like tennis ball sized uh, lump, you know, from a block yeah. shot.
0: Hockey players are lunatics. They absolutely. Yeah they not to go full please like my sport, but yeah, hockey players are very crazy when it comes to that and the stuff they're asked to play through. I mean, the guys who played through broken bones. I mean Carlson and that the year they beat the Rangers in the second round, what was that, 2017? Yeah, where he was playing with a broken ankle for a month and a half, and he was still one of the most yeah. dynamic players in the league. Crazy. And and you
3: know what? Like another like could have been Rangers team was the year where uh, Callahan goes and blocks the, the yeah. Daniel Chara slap shot and. That's, that's the end of the season. Yeah. Wow.
0: Hmm. Story you are most proud of that how it turned out.
3: You know, I, I had a lot of uh, freedom when I was working for XN and it was great. It was kind of like, you know, a shorter term kind of gig.
1: Mm-hmm. I was a
3: startup and, you know, I, I would have liked to have an opportunity like that. Like I saw other people working where they had the kind of freedom in a longer stint like a place like the sporting news or sports Illustrated, you know good long form stuff like i remember just like noticing how much of a lightning rod tanner glass came along with fan base. and you know i felt like he kind of came i guess i don't know what you call it, patient zero uh, whatever <laughs> you want to call it the uh he became the mark man in some ways and, and for the whole debate on fighting and its usefulness in the game and, you know, even though my opinion has, uh, on fighting has evolved from the time when I was a flyer fan going to Continental airline, Airlines Arena, bang for blood versus, <laughs> you know, my more, uh, my, my total change in stance uh, nowadays is just saying, like, you know what, these guys have lives after hockey. They're not, you know, robots on the ice. They're not here for our entertainment alone. You know, I, I want to see these guys be able to hug their grandchildren and be able to live a, uh, a relatively pain-free life after their career is over. Um, but anyways, um, you know, I feel like he Tanner Tanner Glass is at the at the center of the fighting debate, and I felt like you know when it came to WFAN, I had to be kind of black and white about his performance, whether I thought he was playing well or whether I thought he wasn't, whether I thought he had a value in the lineup or whether he should be taken out so those were you know you know big headline kind of stuff and part of me kind of didn't like writing that just because in the end he was a fourth liner on a really good team you know it's like it's really you're really reaching there if you're if you're you know going after a guy who's playing nine 10 twelve minutes on a fourth line on a team A player who, you know, for his credit, was a fairly good penalty killer. Yeah. But, you know, when I had that opportunity to send, I liked that I had a free canvas, And I always wanted to know like more about how he became a fighter. Because, you know, this was a guy who throughout his youth and, uh, you know, I guess in his teens, like he was teaching power skating. And, you know, I think with a lot of rugged players and fighters you know a lot of them were the standout skilled player you know whether it was Tanner glass in saskatchewan or any other uh player that ilk you know at at midget level at at high school level prep level for these guys like they were the standout player on their team and they have to adapt and be able to find a role in the nhl you know maybe they scored 40 goals in in juniors, but now they have to adapt and and have a different value uh, for the team. And, you know, whether it was Torella or A.V. or any coach, you know, while I was covering the Rangers, they all had an appreciation for fighting. You know, my, my opinion might have been different. My opinion might have been, you know, let's put out a fast skating fourth line that can dominate possession and, you know, not Not be like your typical black and blue blood and guts kind of fourth line um, so I did like that I had the opportunity just to ask them you know how, how did you become a fighter you know what 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 led you down that path in your career and you know i I was able to get a good handle on who he was and you know we talk about different things off ice and you know he was a very friendly guy. Um, and I like that, you know, he opened up and he said, you know, my first time learning to fight was on the ice on a pond in Saskatchewan, and my uncle was teaching me how to protect myself. And he's like, it was like something out of the movie Youngblood. And he went on to like, tell me how much of a nerd he is for that movie. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. It's like some commonality, um, you know, because who doesn't like that movie?
1: Yeah.
3: As as cheesy and as goofy it is, it is like, it, it, it you have to love Youngblood. So, you know, I liked it, you know, when you had an opportunity just to, like, sit down with a guy for a while and, you know, learn more about their story. Um, You know, even just the opportunities when players come in from another city and, you know, someone might, might give you something really good. Like, I remember talking with Shane Doan and, you know, he told me this great story about how he was a rookie on the Winnipeg Jets, you know, because we remember Doan as, like, the eternal uh, Arizona Coyote, Phoenix Coyote, but, you know, he was on those young uh, Jets teams with Solani and Kachuk and, I guess, Jam all those guys, and he was saying, like, suddenly he's he's a rookie in the NHL, and whenever they'd fly uh, through uh, from uh, Winnipeg to the United States, they'd fly through uh, the Minnesota airport, and there was this big arcade there, and Solani would take him to the arcade and they'd play like Sega Rally. So I was just like, that was pretty, pretty fun to hear like his experiences with Solani and just, you know, kind of like the typical like rookie being taken under his wing by like this superstar that you're in awe of, this guy who's in like milk ads in Finland and, you know, duck hunt and all that. So, you know, it. That, that's the best thing. You know, if I never cover hockey again, like, I'll appreciate when guys who didn't even really know who I was but could see, you know, hey, there's a young guy on the beat, you know, looking to uh, get, a, get a good story, seems like a nice guy, you know, I'll open up to him and tell him something cool.
0: What's a story you would like a mulligan on? That you wrote that you felt either it changed after it was written and you didn't feel like it was fair after the fact or a time you got something wrong what's something you feel like you if you had a mulligan on you would go back and fix
3: you know i don't want to go back to Tanner Glass because <laughs> he like I, he was a consummate professional yeah he was a great teammate everybody loved him in that room but just you know i had an editor who i really appreciated working with but and i don't i don't want to put the blame on him mm-hmm. but you know, it, i don't want it to come off that way in any way but it's his jurisdiction you know it's his like once i send off the column he writes a headline and i think the headline on that you know definitely uh, ruffled some feathers you know i mean there, there are definitely times i can draw back on and, and think my own framing with certain stories work where i felt like you know looking back shoot you know i wish i didn't write it that way you know because I, I i never wanted to be an adversarial guy yeah. in the room and I, i've seen it, like i've seen uh, matches between reporters and players and uh you know that wasn't me i wasn't looking for that and i felt like if i ever wrote something i think uh i think one time like i think i wrote something a little too harsh on uh john moore
1: Mm -hmm.
3: and i remember i went to him i met one going to him the next practice or morning skate and just being like hey like i'm sure you saw that like you know like i i I, if i could take it back and and write it differently
0: i would have you know that's on me that's part of being a professional though is if you mess up you have to go be able to tell a guy hey man that's on me i'm sorry is going forward i need to be more careful that kind of that's part of this job is being able to admit you're wrong and be respectful of the people you're dealing with because you're dependent on each other you need them and to not the same degree but they need the media covering them as well that's part of it yeah, yeah. i
3: mean you know part of the reason why these guys make the money that they do get the raises they do is because of the coverage that they get and yeah you know that that coverage adds up to car trophy votes and selfie boats and and things of that nature. So, um, yeah, I feel like uh, it's definitely, um, it's definitely, it's definitely a hard thing to write something negative about a player, and I don't think fans quite understand. Like, you have a responsibility to your reader write what's going on yeah and if that player is dragging the team down you know you don't want to make it about one guy you don't want to single somebody out at the same time you have responsibility to say what's going on yeah and you know i i I hope that you know the next time so and so writes something negative and it's and it's and it's fair you know because there is negative and it's overboard and it's an agenda you know we've seen that with whether it's writers who write at a local paper or a national paper or some talking head on on a tv show like there are times where we in the media go too far and turn somebody into a pinata you know but that's not me that's not my mo. and that's
0: not what i went there looking for definitely not definitely not. if i give you a time machine you can go cover any hockey game and write the game story or write a column afterwards what game would it be and why
3: any game I have like so many different thoughts on that because I remember the first game I went to was a '94 Eastern Conference semifinal, so it was I guess it was the round before the Devils faced the Rangers in the '94 uh, the Eastern Conference final. And I remember like going to the old Continental Airlines Arena, Brendan Byrne Arena, whatever you want to call it, Izod. And, like, being there. And that was my first hockey game. That was the first time I walked in and, like, wow, there's Ray Bourque, There's Cam Neely. There's Adam Oates. You know, and there's a young Mark Broder who's the talk of the league. You know, so, you know, on one hand, I, I, it would be kind of cool to cover your own first hockey game. You know, if I could just, like, somehow get into the time machine and not run into my – 10-year-old self and throw off the whole time continuum thing. Wobbly-wombly, timey-wimey, Doctor Who stuff. Um, that's something I would like to do, I guess.
0: That's a good answer. I, I've asked that to a few different people. The answers have varied. I've gotten the Miracle on Ice more than once. I've gotten the Kerry Frazier game where Doug Gilmore high-sticked Wayne Gretzky a couple of times. I've gotten a number of them. So that's a good answer. That's a sentimental answer. I can yeah, appreciate it. I feel, I feel like
3: if there was some way like I could combine... The brain that I have now with the buzz that I felt. i <laughs> going to my first hockey game. And just yeah. being my kid who sat on his butt playing NHL 94 and playing street hockey with my friends, you know. Yeah. But that's kind of like what my career was anyway, you know, just a kid who sat
1: in the
3: arena and wanted to do it and make that a reality and somehow with hard work and fate and good luck that it turned into a reality.
0: If you could sit down with one person, long-form feature, as long as you want it to be, who would it be and why? They could be dead or alive. I'll give you the leniency.
3: I think I want to go with uh, Maurice
0: Richard. Okay. Please, explain.
3: Uh, well, my uncle uh, is a big Canadian fan. He grew up in in the city, and he kind of, like, introduced me to hockey. Like I I mean, like I said, my dad was a Flyers fan. And... Uh, You know, I didn't really grow up with, like, any pressure to root for any particular team, so when I was a kid, I kind of gravitated into Lemieux, Salani, Lindros, all those guys. Um, But, you know, it was, like, the way that among Canadian fans that Maurice Richard spoke of, like, it's, like, a mythical, like, thing. Like, I don't know if that really resonates with the younger hockey fan, and if any, like, hockey man has the opportunity, go look up the closing of the forum where it had all the Canadians' legends Come down with, with the torches to pass down, and they pass it down to um, the captain. Was it? it might have been Mueller or Dan Boost. I, I can't remember who was the captain at the time. I don't think it was Coyle yet. But that was so cool. Like if you like, you know, because you think about like the most iconic franchises in sports, and you think of the Yankees, and you know they used to say the old ghosts of Yankee Stadium, and you know the curse of the Mantino and all that, and you look at you know, the Canadians and the lore of that sacred flannel, you know, what are they call The sacred flannel. Um, and, you know, I would love to just know what Maurice Richard went through on a daily basis, carrying that burden, carrying that city, wearing that, that CH crest, and, you know, being a player who inspired such a fierce devotion among the fan base. Like, that's somebody who I, I would love to interview, you know. I guess you'd have to look back at Dave, Stubb, Dave Stubbs and, um, you know, all the, all the, you know, older hockey writers who actually had the opportunity, whether through an alumni event or those who were actually covering the Canadians way back in the day. Um, I guess it would have to be pretty young to be still around. But just, you know, just through however circumstance, that they had the opportunity to interview Richard because I feel like like Gretzky is a great spokesman for the game, and Lemieux is a great spokesman for the game, and you know all through the line up to Sidney Crosby being a great represent representative of what the game is about. I just felt that you know there's a bit of controversy, you know that that Richard had where he became. A marked man in opposing arenas, and he became someone who became a, a, a cult like, as close to a god like figure as possible
0: to Canadians fans. I, yeah, those Canadians teams. I mean, Dryden is, I still think Dryden's book is the best hockey book I've ever read. I don't know about you. The game, it, it just the Canadians were folk heroes. Uh, that Quebec is very. Territorial. It's very provincial. It's very ideological. Ideological. That sect of the population in Canada really they stick. They cling to their identity tightly. And the Canadians are the most outwardly facing part of that identity. I mean, it's the same thing with Long Island and the Islanders. Obviously, it's not to the same degree. But when that's like your main national face to the rest of the world, it it, it makes sense as to why the Canadians grew so big and why Rocket Richard was such an iconic figure.
3: Right, and and if you think back to it, and I don't know if you saw
0: the movie The Rocket. No, I have not.
3: Okay, um, just knowing that you know Montreal, looking back in its history, there was a divide between the English-speaking yeah. and the French-speaking Canadians, and what he represented to those to those uh, French-speaking Canadians who felt at one point that they were discriminated against, and him being this, their folk hero, their guy, you know. You talk about breaking barriers and and all that, and I think I even remember in the movie, like I think they had Sean Avery play a ranger who, <laughs> you know, said a slur to him, and, and uh, I think I think in the movie, I think Avery got like punched, whatever. But he, he had to play that guy, so it was kind of like an indication of, at that time that, you know, it wasn't just a, a Canadian thing. It was you know it wasn't just English speaking Canadian versus french Canadian thing, You know, Richard got taunts throughout the league at the time, so you know, he definitely played through the fire, and he played with such a fire on the ice, and they always talk about, like, his eyes, you know, he'd be bearing down on net, and his two eyes would look like you know, dark bullets, you know, like, so he had, he had that intimidation, he wasn't a big player, you know, he gave it back as, as much as he got it, so, you know, for me, like, when you have, a, like, a legendary hockey player, like, again, you know, nobody touches Gretzky in terms of accomplishment but so just him being a legend of the game, like, I can't think of anyone else who was revered that way.
0: Okay, two last light questions before I get you out of here. Number one, what is your favorite hockey movie?
3: I think when I went and saw Miracle in theaters, I, I thought it was so bizarre. Like, you're sitting there, and everyone knows the outcome yeah and you're you're in the theater and all of a sudden you start hearing u.s.a. u.s.a. chance and it's it, it was it was surreal so like it was almost like you're watching the game live and i remember like watching the dvd extras and just seeing you know they got real hockey players college level hockey players guys who played college or prep and they you know they they taught them how to act rather than teaching actors how to skate so the on ice uh, scenes were very authentic and you know you had had al Michaels re-record some of his audio for it just you know so it matches up and it syncs up and it captures the spirit so i thought you know, they didn't disney did an excellent job with that movie um but it's just a matter of like taste and flavor and absolutely is, it's like what kind of mood are you in you know yeah like i just started we watching or sorry i just started watching the new uh Mighty Duck series on Disney Streaming with my girlfriend. You know, she she said she wanted to watch it and check it out. You know, we started jumping into it. You know, and I look back and I say, I'm not sure what year the first My Ducks came out. Maybe '92. I must have been eight or something, seven. And uh, you know, that was like a that hockey became cool to me in that way. I know it sounds stupid, and that it, you know, it's uh, it's a Disney movie. But like you know, it, it was it was a fun movie, you know, with a great uh, character and uh, Coach Bombay leading the team, and obviously you, had your, you
0: know your
3: Goldberg moment <laughs> and your uh, Averman puns and all that, and so yeah, I guess it just kind of just depends what kind of mood you're in, you know. I don't I don't want to like remove Slapshot from the conversation. Yeah. I know if I don't say Slapshot, people are gonna come after me, and obviously you know. The goalie Francois Lemieux you know with his explaining of the penalties at the beginning of the movie like so with hockey we're blessed out a lot of really good hockey movies whether it's like historically accurate or whether it's fun or whether you know in the case of Slapshot it being kind of a uh, a parody of hockey
0: yeah yeah no I I always go with Mystery Alaska. I don't know what it is about that movie that I like so much. Just, I think it's the visuals, to be completely honest with you. It's just such a strikingly beautiful movie. All of the outdoor shots are really nice. The acting in it isn't great. I, 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 it's not great, but the visuals are really nice, and something about it resonates. Always been slap shot. I mean, even the Goon movies have a life of their own now, and those aren't like serious hockey movies, but they resonate with people. They find that... The overly, they it's almost a parody of you know the enforcer role, and I think that's why people find it so outrageous and so funny that you know they found a bar, they found a bouncer at a bar who likes to beat the crap out of people, and they said, We're going to teach you how to skate. and They got two movies out of that, and the second movie has actual NHL players in it, which is one of the more remarkable things,
3: yeah. And you know, we mentioned uh, we met we mentioned Youngblood earlier,
0: yeah, Youngblood, too, yeah. and
3: and you know. I don't. As much as I respect Ian Reeves, I don't think his French accent synced up. <laughs> that man is an animal. <laughs>
0: the last thing I wanted to ask you about: you're a big Jersey guy. Not so, you're a big Jersey guy. What do you I'm like? So- Jersey
3: guy. I'm from Jersey. I collect jerseys. Yeah. I get it.
0: What do you like about collecting jerseys so much? Because I'm a Jersey guy too. I was curious about what you, appeals to them about you.
3: Uh, for me, it's just, like, the passing down history.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, my, my mom was a big Knicks fan, so she got to see Walk by Frazier, Busher, Willis Reed, all that. And, you know, this isn't a plug, but it's cool that, you know, Mitchell and Ness makes faithful reproductions of jerseys from that era, you know. Like, you know, my mom passed away when I was 13. Uh, she was my best friend. She was 44 and you know she she the only thing she really pressed upon me were the knicks and the yankees mm-hmm. so i feel like you know if if i look in my closet and i see like a walt frazier jersey like it, it, it kind of keeps that connection alive for me but like you know that that's very personal and mm-hmm. probably different from a lot of people but you know it you know not you know not trying to get that kind of emotional story or anything like that but uh you know, same thing as seeing like you know Mattingly for the first time. You know, you you go and you go on eBay and you know my whatever you know youth-sized T-shirt jersey that I wore at Yankee Stadium that day. Mattingly 23 doesn't fit me, but you know you can find a Russell Athletic, you can find a reproduction Mitchell and Ness, and I feel like you know if you if you wear the right jersey in the right crowd. You know, people are gonna start conversations. You a know, great way to <laughs> connect with people. Yeah. You know, if, if they see you wearing, you know, an authentic Allen Iverson rookie season Sixers jersey, like the jersey head's gonna spot that right
0: away. Yeah, no, definitely. I, that's why I I always kind of went off the beaten path. I'm always on eBay. I always have the weird search filters on. Like I got a Stu Bickle jersey for $8 on eBay, like a Reebok authentic. Someone paid real money for a retail price version. And you know I got it for eight bucks and it's in the collection and I've worn it once or twice. And yeah, like you said, it gets a reaction. It, it, it's one of those things where it's both a memory because you're tying it back to a specific thing. And two, it also has the added effect of, well, people are going to talk about that now.
3: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm a Jersey nerd. I, I'm more than happy to share that uh, designation with you. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's an insult, but I meant, I meant like, you know, we're both passionate about Jersey stuff. Oh,
0: and absolutely.
3: Nothing but a compliment.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm a huge Jersey nerd. That's one of the things that's been interesting as I've gotten older is now that me and my friends have a little bit of spending money, that's basically all we spend our money on is jerseys and solely with the intention of just wearing them out for no other reason than for other people our own age to be like, yeah, that's a nice jersey. That's pretty much a a general consensus amongst everyone who's college age and a little bit out of college is jerseys are acceptable party wear and it's translated. I mean, even my friends who aren't that into sports have a bunch of basketball jerseys solely for that reason
3: i mean it was a great party where you know not aging myself but you <laughs> know in, in in the 90s you know i mean I, you know, I didn't become a teenager i guess until the late 90s or early 2000s but you know the, the culture then was the hip-hop culture it was the baggy jeans. it was the uh, the cargo shorts it was the chains it was you know The oversized XXL basketball jersey that you got against all
1: odds.
3: (laughs) Um, So, yeah, um, great party wear. Um, You think of like Ice Cube. I I did that Friday video. Yeah. And he's wearing like the Griffey Mariner jersey and the Thomas White Sox jersey.
0: Um,
3: And that's the thing. Like you you say nowadays, you know, you spend X amount on on an authentic jersey. But the thing is, like, I follow all these guys on instagram like rare vintage uh, top shelf grip uh shout out to them uh mr throwback places like that mm-hmm. people pay real top dollar for yeah. jersey. those jerseys, those authentic diamond collection mlb jerseys those authentic uh nba champion jerseys especially the rare guys so in a way like it sounds like silly money to somebody your age but take it from me somebody a little bit older 36 I wish I bought that Dorothy Diamond Collection authentic jersey when I was younger, or I wish that I bought that Lemieux uh, Robo Penguin. Yeah. If we're gonna go really out there, like Paul Kariya, Solani, Duck jumping through ice, their jersey, yeah. which is now just come back around again. Yeah. Everybody, everybody wants the original. Yeah. Or the uh, the Desert Dog uh, Coyote Kashina, like. Those are those are sweet. They did that right with their um their the the, the jersey program. They were called reverse retro. Reverse yeah. Retro. They the Coyotes did that right. That 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 jersey looks beautiful. Yeah. If you don't love that jersey, you're not a jersey
0: person. Yeah. Very much. so. It's one of those things where I wish hockey jerseys could. I wish they weren't so thick and the sleeves kill it for casual people because hockey jerseys yeah, look cool. I
3: think, think you I think you're a little off on that
0: because modern day hockey
3: jersey it's like it's tapered yeah and it's fitted and it's made to be breathable and lightweight you know the jerseys that i walked around wearing in the 90s as a kid going to school you know that my parents bought for me with the intention that i was going to grow into like those
0: were heavy duty jerseys they don't make them like that anymore no, that's true. Yeah, I can definitely feel the difference because I have a few older Ranger jerseys in my closets. And you the one of the old CCM, yeah, the coat. CC, yeah, the CHCM or the Coho ones, yeah, those are a lot thicker than the Adidas ones I wear now. No, you saw my jaw drop, the Capitals made a pretty big trade. That's all
3: you gotta, you gotta break it to me because, um. I'm sitting here with my notifications off. I'm no longer a hockey reporter. Yeah. So I'm kind of chilling out, sitting on the sidelines.
0: Oh, they—the uh, Red Wings traded Anthony Mantha to the Capitals for Joe Panik and Jacob Verano, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, okay. the Capitals have been pretty high on Verano for a while, and I, one more run, I guess. I—I I don't know. It, it's been a weird year. The—the the pandemic has made yeah. hockey very weird this year. Where yeah,
3: that—that is—that is, that is something I, I do miss about covering uh, games and covering teams, covering live skates. Trade deadline. I miss covering the trade deadline because I remember like when Callahan got traded and him being in that room and it filtering through and you know him jumping on the flight and them hustling St. Louis in there to make his debut that night. So that that was that was definitely something I, I miss about reporting.
0: I remember that day well. I remember I was coming up the stairs out of the locker room from gym. I unlocked... I saw... I had a Twitter notification. I swiped up on my phone. I opened it. I saw the trade and I said, I guess they're going for it. And they, they came close. They came close. That trade has aged well with the benefit of hindsight because of how dinged up Callahan got towards the end of his career and what he ended up doing. It aged well. That, that's really all you can ask for from these trades is as long as you feel like you got yeah. close I mean, enough to... I mean, look... I mean,
3: how many guys were more of a hard and soul ranger than Calman. Yeah. Right. And the you know, players' player, um, seeing McDonald awards all that. Like, I, I've never seen a player pull on the Rangers uniform who really gave blood, guts, hard and soul. You know, Girardi too. You can't take away from Girardi, but you know, the, the thing is like as important as Callahan was to the soul of that team and that identity under Tortorella, when you had the opportunity to bring in St. Louis, I think he won the Art Ross the year before that
1: mm-hmm. at, a, at,
3: a, at a fairly advanced age. Yeah. And then for him to come in and, you know, obviously he he struggled initially in terms of getting points and the adaptation process. But, you know, obviously, you know, the mother's, uh, the Mother's Day game, you think of,
0: yeah,
3: um, and you, you know, still, my heart goes out to you know what happened to him at that time, losing his mother. But boy, you know, they wouldn't have made it there to the final without him that year. And he, re- they really rallied around him, and I think we all can remember vividly that video of him pumping everybody up in the locker room with yeah. the call.
0: Yeah. Nostalgia, man nostalgia is very nice basically i mean that
3: that doesn't seem that far away right that wasn't that long ago that was eight years ago or am am i getting i know i know it is i know it is but like in terms of like feeling
0: oh no that feels like forever ago because every game ages me about two years because i still care too much because i'm still (laughs) too stupid i feel like it's the opposite for me that it
3: feels it feels maybe it's because i covered it day to day Mm -hmm. but it it still feels almost like i can kind of reach out and touch those times because those were special times, you know, for someone who covered the team, and obviously for anyone who followed the Rangers
0: and the fan of the Rangers at that time. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Sean. I know you were a little bit hesitant to be like, "What do I have to offer?" I, I told you we would have a fun conversation.
3: No, I, I, I don't think I don't think I came cross away at all in terms of not wanting to be interviewed or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, you know, my my career kind of came to a close. I didn't really get to write that perfect ending that I wanted to. But um, yeah, I enjoyed reflecting on it and being able to discuss it with you. And hopefully, you know, your listeners will get to hear a different side of things or something that will uh, click with them in a way. Who knows? You know, maybe somebody who wants to be a young hockey writer who, who thinks, you know what, I can take the unconventional path whether it be hockey writing, sports writing, news media, anything, and say, you know what, if I have the, the drive and the willingness to, you know, start from scratch, learn everything, you know, do everything possible to chase my dream, you know, go, I say go after it, you know, do it, because life's only so, only so long, yeah. and you don't want to live with regrets when you're an old person.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, definitely a fun conversation. I try to have as many different types of people from as many different walks of life on this show is kind of, we all interact with sports and how we interact with sports is important and how, why we care so much. And all of the things that go into it as a fan, as a professional, as a content creator, no matter what kind of guest I've had on, we all interact with sports and hearing how everyone interacts with sports is really interesting. And I've really had a great time doing this.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, it's cool connecting with you. I know like we've been in touch before and, you know, I'm obviously happy to, uh, come on and, you know, discuss all these things. It was great, you know, reminiscing about things and chatting with you and getting to connect with you on a number of things. And, you know, obviously, you know, you got my number and, uh, happy to come on another time. And I feel like, uh, Right now where I'm at, I'm like readjusting to fan life.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: So I hope that uh, when the pandemic's over, uh, I'll just be able to go to the garden and have a beer with my girlfriend in the crowd and just enjoy hockey as a fan.
0: Yeah. You'll be back to talk about Liverpool. Don't worry. We're going to have you genuinely as a fan to come talk about something you're very passionate about. You will be back to talk about Liverpool at some point soon.
3: You do have a Liverpool podcast.
0: No, I talk about everything on this. I do okay. soccer, I do baseball, basketball, football, hockey. I did a NASCAR episode. I did a Formula One episode. I just like talking to people about things they're passionate about.
3: Yeah, yeah I've been trying. I've been trying to get a little more into Formula One. I used to be into it mm-hmm.
0: when I
3: was a bit younger, um, but I did see like the, the Netflix series. That yeah, did, like, the behind the scenes thing. And I, I you know, as someone who, as a writer or as someone who's just a sports fan. You, you, I love any time you have the opportunity to get to know who someone is away from their profession. I
0: mean, Definitely. What, what
3: drives them what makes them fit.
0: Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on, Sean. I will see you guys tomorrow. Not sure on the guest. It might be the Minnesota Wild episode. I've been promising it depends on my friend's availability. Or it might be a little bit of hockey reflecting on the trade deadline. It depends what the guest situation is like for tomorrow. I will see you guys then.